Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're up in the clouds. The roar of our engines, the wind rushing by is deafening. And as we break out into another patch of clear sky, we look out of the window down at the famous patchwork of Britain, different shades of green, the occasional yellow and brown bisected by hedgerows and roads. It's magnificent. And then as we turn back towards the shining roofs of the city, there's a beep. The beep continues. A couple of the dials are going crazy. This is bad. We're going down. What's happened? The engine's stalling. Wait, is it? can we land the plane? Can we make it back to a runway somehow? No, probably not. What about in someone's garden? That's not going to work. But there, right in front of the seat between my legs, is the black and yellow handle that we've been told never to touch. Never to touch unless absolutely necessary. There's no other option. Eject, eject, eject. Let's go. Hello, welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from history hits. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. I like to explore the full gamut of the weird and wonderful world of inventions on this podcast, as you know. Uh, And for a while, I've been banging on about doing this one. Uh, Stories from the extreme edge of health and safety. Health and safety gone mad. Health and safety is one of those areas that is just ripe with inventions. And there is none more extreme, more weird, more strange, more dramatic in the world of health and safety than the invention of the ejector seat. The machine that, for your own good, explodes rockets under your backside as it launches you into 600 mile an hour winds. Absolutely terrifying. The story of how the modern ejector seat came to be involves, as you might expect, strange things, giant springs, medieval catapults, bombs, and the pioneering engineer, a man called James Martin, who did more than anyone else to shape the modern ejector seat. My guest today is the very brilliant John Nickel, author of a new book called, imaginatively, Eject Eject. He's a veteran of the Gulf War, where together with his pilot, he really did pull the yellow and black handle. And here's what happened.
Welcome to the show, John Nickel. It's a pleasure to have you on the show and congratulations on the new book, Eject Eject. Thank you, Dallas. That's very kind of you to have me. Are we? What are we going to talk? Really techie stuff or wacky I'm, stories? I've been, been wanting to do this ejection seats for ages. A million years ago, I had a, I was at the um, Empire Test Pilot School, and I got a chance. To, I had to do my ejector seat training because I was flying in a. I can't remember what it was. Uh, what did you go flying in? It was the kinetic hawk, hawk yeah. that they had down d- down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hawk, by the way, is the red is the kind of plane, the red arrows. It's the it's the RAF's training jet. Oh, sorry, it used to be. We don't really use them that much anymore, but the red arrows do. So you were in. You sat on a Mark Ten ejection seat, which is the one I used in the tornado. Well, there you go. It had an ejection seat. And in order for me to do this, I had to learn how to eject. I should point out, I didn't have to eject at any point. But I'll tell you something. Flying, hurtling along in this thing. There's this big yellow and black handle between your legs, and you get that almost that kind of vertigo sense, where they, where they, were like Dallas, for God's sake, do not pull that. Don't. Uh, well, Dallas, I mean, there are. I, I think there's two or three stories where, because you know, we in the Air Force, we often took not me, I was a navigator, but we often took passengers flying to demonstrate what we could do, VIPs, rewards for ground crew, and I think there are three occasions where a passenger pulled the handle just to see what would happen. Almost kind of that, uh, uh, there's a famous picture of a, a French guy that not that long ago, maybe five or 10 years ago, who did it. And an engineer did it in a Hawk as well, pulled the handle and left. In, in flight? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, ejected. Can we just establish something here, John, before we go on? Pulling the ejection handle in a fast jet is not a sensible thing to do. I mean, it's a sensible thing to do under circumstances, but this is a violent... You, you go through the canopy. The canopy shatters, you go through it. Depending on what system you have, yeah. I mean, but it is, it's one of those things that people obviously just become focused on this thing. Oh my God, oh my God, don't touch it. And then you kind of hold it. Oh my God, oh my God, don't, whatever you do, don't move. Oh, oh no! <laughs> yes. We're going we're gonna to come on to all of this because it's fascinating. It's a fascinating story. But can you do us a favour, John? And, and, you know, you're a great speaker. I'm sort of nervous to ask you. It's a bit like asking astronauts, you know, what's it like to walk on the moon? <laughs> It's 1991. It's the first Gulf War. What are you doing? You're in a tornado. What's going on? Myself and my pilot, John Peters, were on the first daylight low-level attack of Operation Desert Storm. The attack had gone wrong, you know, a bit of a cock-up of my part. We thought we were safe and heading home. It was daylight, so we were flying an ultra-low-level operation. So maybe 20 or 30 feet above the desert. So kind of the height of a second floor window in a, in a house, maybe, what, 550, maybe 600 miles an hour, 600 plus miles an hour. Uh, so my pilot's just flying, but we were hit by a heat-seeking surface-to-air missile. What does that feel like? Just tell us, tell us, you, tell us what the cockpit's like in, in a tornado and tell us what, what are you feeling like, and you get hit. The tornado's quite a roomy cockpit in actual fact. You know, you're strapped hard into your seat, but you can, you know, you're not, it's not a tiny cockpit. It's, you know, there's plenty of room in there. And so you're kind of just go, doing your job, monitoring the systems, looking at the navigation, looking at the defensive systems, talking about why the attack's wrong and what people will say when you get home. But, you know, we were hit by a heat-seeking missile. It's kind of like it's being hit by an express train. You know, it's a supersonic telegraph pole, to be perfectly honest, which explodes kind of knocks the aircraft sideways. We almost hit the ground. Luckily, JP, my pilot, gets hold of it. But we're on fire. The fly-by-wire technology is down. And it becomes quite quickly apparent that we're not taking this aircraft home and we need to eject. Ejecting, you alluded to it there, Dallas. Ejecting is your last 
chance of survival. It's your last hope. It's the thing that you do at the very end of every other option. You pull the handle and hope that this seat, which has been sit, which was could have been built thirty years before, that some men in the factory and women in a factory in uh, near Uxbridge for Martin Baker, when they were with their little screwdrivers and bits of super glue, putting bits together, putting it all, linking all the cables, putting all the tubes on, twenty years earlier, thirty years earlier, and it sat in that cockpit. We all just presume that when you pull the handle, it'll work. And in my case, it did. I mean, can you still remember how it felt? I mean, you've told the story so many times and I wonder, do, do you still have the actual memory yeah. in you? And, and kind of, is it fear? Is it like, who gives the order to eject? What's the, what's the process? It, I mean, it can, it, it can be anything. So we had probably 10 or 15 seconds to decide what to do and how to do it. But the reality is that it's your last chance. And so you pull the handle and technology takes over like that. It takes over in a, in a hundredth of a second. And everything happens automatically. In a tornado, you don't go through the Perspex cockpit unless the canopy hood doesn't come off. So the canopy hood has got rocket motors in the, the base of the hood. They ignite. The, rock, the, the canopy hood is blasted off. The first set of explosives in the seat fire and it begins to rise up the rails. It's attached to in the back of the aircraft. And so your arms are dragged in to the, on restraining straps. Your legs are dragged in on restraining straps into the seat to stop them flapping around. Your, foot, your shoulder harness is tightened on a power retraction system. And so you're sitting in the back of the seat. You start to rise up. And as you rise up, the rocket motors under the seat fire. You accelerate from zero to 200 miles an hour upwards under 18 times the force of gravity in about half a second, upwards into a wind speed equivalent of however fast you're flying. So it's like being on a wildest, wackiest, most out of control roller coaster in the middle of the night on fire. And it happens in an instant. And before you know it, two and a half seconds after pulling the handle, the parachute opens and there's silence. Do you have time to be scared? You say this all happens in a split second. Like, did you have a moment before when they said eject, eject, or is it just, just a blur? I know, mate, no. There, there's, a, there's a moment of fear when you're hit, and you're, you know, there's a moment of fear when you see the flames spreading around you. But, I mean, it's a, it is a cliche, Dallas, but you're trained, you've practised everything a hundred, a thousand times before in the simulator. And so and th there's fear, but you're, it, it, not, not, it's not immobilising fear. You know, because you know what you have to do, you are going through a sequence of events. So you're scared when the parachute opens and you look down and you're landing in enemy territory. It's basically, I've, it's a journey. Ejecting is a journey. And the journey goes in, in waves and peaks and troughs. Sometimes you're scared, sometimes you're not, sometimes you're grateful. Sometimes you're laughing when you realise how ridiculous the situation is. But as a physical act, for example, you say, you, you know, you're rocketed up at I don't know how many G. Eight, about 18 G, zero to 200 miles an hour in half a second. See, that on the human body, that's got to feel something. Yeah, but you can't feel it. It's, it's instantaneous. You, I remember pulling... So I described it to you. Describing took probably 90 boring seconds of your podcast time. Beautiful 90 seconds, John. <laughs> <laughs> but you, I remember pulling the handle, a blast and a flash, and then... A bang as the parachute opened and the silence. Because it's two and a half seconds. One, two, done. That's it from pulling the handle. And when we talk about it, the first guy had a very different experience. Well, let's go back in time. Uh, I mean, when did the idea 
of, okay, flying in certain situations is going to be dangerous. How are we going to develop some kind of way of of, of looking after pilots? Is there a, a genesis of this moment? I mean, it was a, an ongoing genesis. So if you look at the First World War and the, the beginning of combat aviation, not that long after the Wright brothers took to the skies, pilots initially weren't given parachutes or pilots and crews were not given parachutes because the commanders thought they might take the easy option, <laughs> jump out and <laughs> yeah. ditch the aircraft rather than continue to fight. But basically that kind of that notion of, and then through into the Second World War, you had a parachute, but escaping meant, especially if you think of a Lancaster and a crew of seven, kind of spinning after being kind of blasted out the sky, the G-force. If you imagine you're on a waltzer doing what? Two and a half G or something like that. Your Lancaster's spinning. So you could be under five, six, seven, eight G. And you're trying to get your parachute on. You're trying to clamber across all. Have you been in the back of the Lancaster? You know what it's like. Yes, I do. They're extraordinary. Yes. You know, yeah. trying to get over the main spar to, which holds their wings on to get to the escape hatch. So that, that became the, the way that you got out was to either turn the aircraft upside down and fall out and pull your parachute or try and jump out of an escape hatch. We didn't know this at the time, but the Germans were developing an escape system, which was basically a large uh, compressed gas tank, which blasted a pilot up four or five feet till he rolled out of the cockpit. And even before that, there was a, a guy called a Flying Officer Dudgeon in the 1930s. He built something in his room in the officer's mess. And he built what was basically a jack-in-the-box device, a, a massive spring under the seat that was basically held on with a catch. And if you were in trouble, you jettisoned the canopy, you pulled the catch, and you sprung up to the top and then you rolled out. Now, the, the air ministry said, no, we're not doing that because we don't want people to leave their aircraft in the 1930s. But, but in something like Spit, I'm just trying to remember David Niven in A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, what a film. One of the greatest films ever made. And there's the famous scene at the beginning where he bails out of the aircraft and parachutes. But I can't remember how they get it. I think he just opened, he opened the hatch and, and then just like leapt out. In, in, you did it a couple of ways in this Spitfire hurricane or anything like that. You would jettison the canopy. You would unstrap making sure that you did not mistakenly unstrap your parachute, by the way. And you would, whilst the aircraft is in a dive or spinning, you would try and climb over the side with a 200, 250 mile an hour air blast holding you where you were, or you would turn the aircraft upside down and you would fall out and then you would manually open the parachute. And were there lots of fatalities during this pre-ejector seat period that, that kind of motivated the fact for ejector seats? Like, were people dying doing this? There were there was clearly tens of thousands of fatalities, but you know people weren't really thinking of ejection seats per se at that point. The, obviously, the Germans were developing in the nineteen forties. I think the first ejection was nineteen forty two by Helmut Schenk with one of these compressed air things that blasted him out. What, one of the big uh, factors was J Sir James Martin of the Martin Baker Aircraft Company. His mate was Valentin Baker which is why it was the Martin Baker Aircraft Company. They were building aircraft. Valentin Baker, who was a hero of the First World War, got won a military cross. He died in an aircraft crash testing one of James's aircraft, and he died in front of James's eyes. Well, this is, this is, a, this is a great point, actually, just to pause for a moment. So when we talk about ejector seats, inevitably the name 
Martin Baker comes up. Martin Baker, make ejection sheets. I mean, it's a name. That's an, is there another company? Yeah, yeah, there are. Yeah, so, you know, you've got the Aces ejection seats in America. Russia has them. China has them. But I guess if you were designing an aircraft, you're like, mm, what kind of a, we're going to go Martin Baker. It's the kind of Rolex of ejector seats. I mean, it, it, I would regard that. It saved my life. It saved many thousands. I think if you look at the, they have got the, the tally on the front page, 7,630. So I am. I'm 6,089. <laughs> They're up to 7,630. Joe Lancaster, the first person who I interviewed for the book, is number one. Okay. Martin Baker. This is the story of Martin Baker. Just tell us again, who, who James Martin and, and Valent- Valentine Baker? The Martin Baker Aircraft Company was set up by James Martin and Valentine Baker to build fighter aircraft in the Second World War. And Valentine Baker was testing one of James's new aircraft it, the engine failed after cra- takeoff. He crashed, and he burned to death in the wreckage. It's a, it's a terrible story, and James Martin watched this. It, was, it really affected James Martin. There's no contemporary of account of really his thoughts at the time. People didn't talk about that, but most people think that that is one of the points where James Martin started to look at aircraft escape systems in the early 1940s. And by the end of the war, he was fully invested in developing what he then called ejection seats. His first invention and escape was called the swinging arm. Yes, tell us about this. This is, so before we get into rockets, and we've had giant jack-in-the-box springs, but what's the swinging arm? This is a crazy thing. The swinging arm is, if you think of a medieval catapult, basically there's there's this massive lever which is fitted along the spine of the aircraft, and there is a giant spring. So it's pivoted to the back and there's a giant spring at the front. And there's a hook like a fishing rod on the pilot's harness on the back. So his first invention was the pilot would get rid of the canopy hood and trigger this giant flingy device. The spring would go off. He'd be hauled out and flung backwards, tumbling over and over like a giant medieval catapult. That didn't go very far. <laughs> That's correct. And was did this ever was this ever used in anger? Or this no, just a- I, 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 no. There's no records of it ever being used used in anger. There's some fantastic drawings of it. Some really amazing, astonishing drawings of it. I love the the, the sort of history, the, the sort of process of, of of how it comes. Okay, Jack in the Box customer, that's not going to work. Giant medieval trebuchet, no. Okay, so the solution to this problem of getting airmen out of aircraft is is the rocket a rocket doesn't come till the 1950s or 60s the first is what we we used to nickname it the bang seat because it was basically a large amount of explosives in a metal bucket seat and it was basically sitting on our bomb so james was testing this with sandbags and everything else. And then he, he asked for a willing volunteer to test it. And a bloke in his factory, Benny Lynch, came forward and said, I'll do that for you, Governor. And they had a rig at Martin Baker. You know those fairground things where you hit a, you use a hammer to hit a, a peg and a bell goes up a pole? Well, that's what it was like. The seat was fitted on this rig and you, uh, Benny Lynch strapped himself onto it. And Mark, James Martin triggered the explosives by pulling a cable and Benny Lynch shot up, but it was a bang. It was an explosion. It wasn't graduated and it could, you know, I think the second or third person to do it broke their back doing it. It's just a bomb. Eight, but also, you know, when you eject, you said about 18G, even for a short amount of time, that's going to have compression on, on, the, human, on the human body, presumably. 
on the new seats or the later ones, it's graduated. On the first seats, it was a bang. What James did to alleviate this was instead of having one big cartridge, he had two or three smaller ones. So the first one went off, the flames from that one ignited the second one, and then the flames from that one ignited the third one. So it was graduated only over the course of maybe a tenth of a second, but it meant that you didn't have 6, 10, 12G coming on instantly, which helped to protect. So you had Benny testing it on the ground. They then tested it airborne with sandbags. And then James Martin said, Benny, how do you fancy doing some parachuting, old boy? <laughs> and he sent him off on a parachuting course and Benny became the first person to test an ejection seat. And he went on to test loads of them. And, but, but, and did he, let's talk about the test. Did, I mean, how did they, did they test on the ground or did they test in the air? Or like, how did, how did all that work? With, do you not do it with sandbags? Why would you not? Well, because you, you did do it with sandbags, but he had to know what the effect would be on a human being. So he actually had a friend who was a surgeon who gave him a human spine, which he kept in a jar <laughs> in his office. And he had other bits. He had bits of vertebrae that he kept in the fridge at work where they kept the milk for the tea break. And so people would be going into the fridge and find bits of back and shoulder next, next to the Crikey. milk for, that had been delivered that morning. So you could, te- you could test them on the ground, but the first seats, you had to be airborne. The development of the seat, you had to be airborne in the first seats. You couldn't do it on the ground. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on not just the Tudors from History Hit, my guests and I run through the full gamut of human emotion and experience, from the heartbreak of the Virgin Queen. Elizabeth not being able to marry arguably the only man in the world she ever really wanted to marry may have, for that reason, not married anyone else. To a prenatal battle of the sexes. A male and a female seed meet in the womb at conception, and whichever one is stronger determines the sex of the unborn child. From Lady Jane Grey facing her executioner. You can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl. To why the Laughing Cavalier is, well, laughing. He strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze up. Subscribe now to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you talk about ejection being a journey. And at that point, when they were testing these early explosives, did they know about the journey, not just the explosion, but also the wind shear that's going to, you know, a 600 mile an hour wind in your face? I mean, did they bring in kind of medical people who understood the physiology? Yeah, and, yeah, and- yeah, they did. They knew before they even tested the airborne. So what James did, instead of having a handle in the seat on the first ones, he had a handle in a head box above your head. And so when you pulled the handle, you had to pull the handle out and down and it pulled up a canvas mask across your face to protect you from the wind blast. And so the face mask came over that you held across your face and then you're flung out of the cockpit. But no, so Benny tested it and then countless other people tested it and then... You know, they gave it to air crew and it went into the aircraft. It was Benny the first person to eject from a, an ejector seat as we might know it, or we might recognise it. First person to eject on a Martin Baker seat testing them. 
They basically got an aircraft from the Ministry of Defence. They fitted this test ejection seat into the rear cockpit and a volunteer pilot flew off with Benny in the back strapped into this ejection seat. And if you look at the pictures, Benny looks as though he's going off for Sunday lunch at the pub. He's, he's got his manicured moustache. He's got his leather hat and his goggles on. He's got his uh, coveralls on, but he's got suit and tie on underneath. It's an astonishing image. Astonishing image. It's, I'm always amazed at... The, the, the kind of testing of this kind of stuff, everyone always looks in the photographs really, really relaxed. and Just amazing. You couldn't, I don't know if we could sort of do that anymore. Well, you wouldn't, I mean, the, we stopped testing back in the 50s after, because a number of people were really badly injured, really badly injured. Ben, did, didn't, Benny broke his ankle, didn't he? I think he... Yeah, Benny broke an ankle. Uh, he would normally, I think, I can't remember how many he did in the end, a dozen or more. But he would often be seen heading off to the pub after landing in his parachute uh, for a celebratory pint. But no, there was there were some people really seriously injured. And the man who, Doddy Hay, who ended up testing the rocket seats in the 50s, he was seriously injured. The name I always think about when I think about the sort of rockets is uh, Colonel John Stapp. That he was an American, I guess he was, I don't know if he was a test pilot or. Yeah, yeah, American. But he used yeah. to go on these kind of rocket sledges to, to understand the effects of G force on the human body. And he had terrible injury, like kind of detached retinas and some of the, you know, and terrible wind shear and un- the stuff they'd put. I talk about in the book the first guy to eject supersonic at about 1.3 Mach in an aircraft that was going out of control. So if you're hit by a wind blast in excess of 800 miles an hour, that's like being hit by a number of sledgehammers, a number of sledgehammers. And he was, you know, his face was ripped apart, his face, part of his face came off, his lungs inflated and almost burst. I think he broke both of his arms, both of his legs, dislocated his shoulders. I mean, you know, so yes. But that idea of having to eject at 70,000 feet going supersonic sounds... Yeah, well, there's, we're jumping all over the place here. Sorry, I'm, I'm, it's too interesting. No, no, it's fine. The next development was something for the B-47 Hustler, which was an enclosed capsule. So it's a seat, but it's got a clamshell like an umbrella that, be, as you eject, it goes clunk, 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 slams down over you. So you're ejecting, in, in effect, a dustbin. There's something the size of a large dustbin. And they tested that, and you've got to look this up, Dallas. It's actually hideous if you think about it now. But they tested that on bears. You je- on bears, massive brown bears, and yeah, 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 ejecting them at kind of one point two, one point three, one point four Mach at seventy thousand feet. Yeah, my God. And did they survive? Yeah, happy as Larry because you're in an enclosed capsule. You can fly in your shirt sleeves. And of course, the F one eleven, the big American bomber, the whole capsule comes off. So it's not an ejection seat or an ejection capsule in the aircraft. The whole cockpit is detached. The whole of the aircraft comes off, like the size of a Ford Escort. It's got half a dozen parachutes on it. And you can, you're can you fat, dumb and happy when you're in that. Well, thing. like a spacecraft ejection, which obviously has an escape motor on top. Exactly yeah. like that. Oh, that's yeah, really yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. tell us. Okay, so, so is there a first person who ejected life-saved number one, as it were? So number one is... Joe Lancaster, he was the test pilot. So he was testing the AW-52. Uh, it looks like 
You know the stealth bomber that we have now? With a, it, that's what it looks like. And this is from 19, for, the 1940s. So Joe ejected in 1949. He was testing this new concept of a flying wing. Who'd have thought 60, 70 years later, that's what we'd be using. His aircraft went out of control. He, he's the chap that said, I just didn't trust this damn thing. You're sitting on a bomb. But he, he's, he's, you know, he's basically, and if I don't use this device now, I'm never going to see my wife and kid again. So I described earlier my ejection process, which was two and a half seconds and automatic. This is what Joe Lancaster had to do to eject. So the first thing he does is he's pull a handle and the cockpit canopy goes off. So he's now exposed to the outside world. He then, he's got the red handle on his Mark I seat. Up by his head, up by his head rather than between the legs. It's over his face. So if you're under G, you've got to reach up, pull it down, pull the face mask over your face, click it and the bombs go off in the back of the seat. And it is just an explosion. It's a metal seat with a bomb in it. So the bomb goes off, throws him out of the cockpit, and now he has to do everything else himself. So there's a little parachute comes out the back of the seat to help stabilize it, but he's still tumbling through the air at 300 miles an hour. And he says, so the ground's going up and over and up and over. And you see, field, sky, field, sky. He then has to reach, tumbling at 300 miles an hour, has to reach around, find his seat harness. So he's attached to his ejection seat. He's got two harnesses. He's got to make sure he gets the right one. He finds the buckle on the seat harness, twists it, presses it, undoes the straps, still tumbling, pushes the seat away. And now he falls off the seat and goes into free fall himself. So he's tumbling now. So he now has to find his parachute release ring again, reaches, finds that, pulls the parachute release ring, the parachute opens and he's floating down. And as he floats down, this, the metal seat comes past him at 180 mile an hour, is that terminal velocity or something? And nearly knocks, oh nearly takes him God. out as the metal seat comes past him. So his process to eject Dallas took just over 30 Crikey. seconds. Nearly got knocked out by seat. So what can, what can... Yeah, nearly got taken out by the seat. That would have really sucked, actually. We talked about, we said, I can't remember, what was the tally? 7,000 lives saved? 7,631. So, so we've, gone, we've gone from springs to explosives. Just, just so a modern ejector seat now, if we go into like the F-35 or something like that. So now, so Joe Lancaster, 30 seconds, everything manual. He had to do everything himself. Me, pull a yellow and black ejection handle, two and a half seconds between my legs, everything everything automatic. Now, on the most modern ejection seats, they are plumbed in, plugged in digitally to the aircraft. They are computerized ejection seats into computerized aircraft. And the ejection seat is monitoring the engines, monitoring the flight, monitoring what's going on. And if, it's only in certain circumstances, and it's basically, if you're in the hover, because of the way the aircraft works, if one of the engines, one of the ways that the aircraft hovers, to put it easily, fails, the ejection seat will automatically eject the pilot without further reference to anybody. Oh my God. See, that would freak me. That's really interesting. Like, at what point did they just, did they take that control away from the pilot? It's, it's only in that because the theory is that if the thrust fans to keep the aircraft hovering while you're either taking off or landing on the side of the, going on the carrier or practicing going on a runway, hovering, if something fails, it is so instantaneous, you would not be able to say, right, in even in a half a second, ah, eject. 
you wouldn't you wouldn't do it you'd be dead so the ejection seat does it for you basically as aircrafts have become more sophisticated faster everything else the ejection seat has had to the technology has had to catch catch up absolutely it is a da- all the way so everything from you know the first aircraft didn't have any arm restraint harnesses or leg restraint harnesses that came in because as you said people were blasting out at 600 miles an hour breaking their arms breaking their legs flapping them around so we we developed restraint systems if you when you did your training you remember that they said right you've got your survival pack back on your backside when you eject, you must release the survival pack because if you don't, you could break your legs when you land. I've forgotten that. Oh, I'm going to have I'm going to have nightmares about not remembering my ejection training. Well, really good mate of mine. Again, there's a photograph of him afterwards. He was knocked out because they ejected at kind of 600 miles an hour in a mid-air collision. He ejected kind of in a as the aircraft rolling towards inverted. He was really lucky to survive. He didn't have a chance to uh, drop this heavy parachute, this heavy survival pack snapped both of his legs when he landed, but in half. Oh, and so there's a picture in the oh, book God. of him. He's a really good mate of mine with basically Meccano holding his legs together. And after those, uh, the, Martin Baker went back to the drawing board and they came up with a tiny little device that was retrofitted into the seats, size of a cigarette packet, which basically when you eject, it starts a timer for, I don't know, three quarters of a second. And they redid the buckle and a little cable was attached to the buckle. And so it just automatically releases the parachute, the, the, the survival. I love, all the, I love the thought that goes behind this. I mean, Martin Baker, I mean, he's a kind of Thomas Edison figure. I mean, just tell us a little bit about him as, as a person. Like, he's not around anymore. As his sort of personality. Do you, do, we, do, you, do you have a sense of his personality as an inventor? No, interesting. He invented everything. He was inventing kind of gas-powered trucks. He invented cable cutters for the front of aircraft. You know, because they put up barrage balloons. Uh, during the war to stop the bombers getting through. He invented cable cutters that went on the wings of aircraft so they could just fly through the barrage balloons. He invented basically a little device for the Spitfire cockpit hood. So instead of having to pull a lever and click it, it was basically a little red tennis ball, an emergency device that you could just pull that and it ejected, it got rid of the Spitfire hood to make escape more easy in the early 1940s. He was a great inventor, but he wasn't a very sociable man. He, he, you know, he didn't like crowds. He didn't like to socialise. He was a massive pain in the backside to the Ministry of Defence or the Air Ministry as it was then because he was always saying, right, I'll invent this for you. Right, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. They're trying to fight a war and he's got all these inventions and he gets really annoyed at them because they won't take all of his inventions up. But many of them are, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people, me included, grateful to him. And he was knighted off for his services in the end, in actual fact. We're going we're gonna to finish a moment. I just want to, I want you to take our listener on a journey. You are in the front seat and me and all our listeners in the back seat. And we've got to eject. Just, just what do they have to do? You put your hand on the, it's a sort of round circular kind of hoop thing, black and yellow. You put one hand on it and your other hand on your wrist. You're remembering, well done. And you just pull like, Buggery. Yeah, and everybody pulls it as hard as they can, ripping their shoulders out of their sockets to make sure that it works. You know, some people, in the, when they've been ejecting and the aircraft spinning, just managed to get one hand down and pull it. I put both of my hands through the ring and pulled as hard as I could. But, you know, the most important thing is that you pull the darn thing and that it goes off, Dallas. If you think about it, this damn thing could have been sitting in this aircraft for 10 years, 15 years. 
People have been jumping up and down on it. It's been flying around. You've had kids at air shows standing on it when they come and look in the cockpit. People have dropped their pens in the, in the <laughs> cockpit next to it. And it just sits there. And with all of its dials and all of its uh, tubes and all of its barostatic delay devices and of its cables and its explosives and its cables that attach rockets to the bottom of the aircraft and your arms to the restraints, they just sit there for 5, 10, 15 years. And you have to presume that when you pull it, the bloke in Martin Baker did his job properly. And I've been to thank them for doing that on a couple of occasions. Gosh, John, thank you so much for taking the time. I could, I, I love the, this story. Just your book is out now, isn't it? It's got the most fantastic picture. of If you want to understand how an ejector seat works and the, and the force behind it, just, you, you know, you are sitting on a rocket and, and there it is going off under your backside. So that is Martin Pert, who went on to be the leader of the Red Arrows. So that's Martin ejecting after crashing on the runway in Afghanistan. That You can watch that video online. And if you look at it, his aircraft is engulfed in flames after he crashes. And you can still see all of the live bombs on his wings, which is why he got out pretty damn sharpish. But it's a lovely picture, and you can just see him above the burning aircraft with these two uh, rocket plumes coming out from his backside. Absolutely amazing. John, congratulations on the book. <laughs> it's the most amazing story, and it's lovely to talk to you. And I'll, I hope It's been a real pleasure. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, yeah. all the best, mate. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, mate. So there we go. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you're enjoying the show. I am looking forward to doing more of these health and safety inventions. We've got some crackers coming up. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, tell everyone about it. Uh, and if you've got a suggestion, health and safety or otherwise, for a topic or a story that um, has intrigued you or something you'd like to talk about, get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or stop me in the street or poke me on social media. And I look forward very much to your company next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.